scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21 and 42 through 44. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By the way, that is a good thing for us to do. We want to start making that a custom here. Um, sorry, I forgot to instruct us about that. At the end of the reading each week, uh, the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord. And then we can all respond. Thanks be to God. Let's try it. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. Okay, let's pray and ask him to help us understand it well. Father, we come and ask again that you would be at work in our midst now. Help us to believe and understand what you have for us here in these pages of Scripture. Father, Jesus does and says amazing things here, and we ask for us to see them as amazing, as true, as life-altering. And we pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen. An opening question for us tonight is this. Why did Jesus come to earth? It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer out loud. Why did Jesus come to earth? I suspect that uh, most of you, if you're followers of Jesus, and perhaps even if you're not a follower of Jesus, but have just been around Christianity for some time um, in San Antonio, would answer that question something like this. Jesus came to forgive me of all of my sins by dying on the cross. That's absolutely the right answer. It's a good answer. It's a true answer. And yet, it's not an exhaustive answer. Uh, The Bible itself actually gives the answer to that question in in a sometimes more full or complete way. In fact, Jesus himself saw his own mission, his own reason for coming to earth as being something, yes, to die for human sin on the cross, but being something even more than that. He he came really to, to inaugurate, to bring the kingdom, the kingdom of God in this world. That's what we're going to think about just for a few minutes tonight, the kingdom of God. And we're thinking about it because tonight we're beginning a new series called Kingdom Come. This is a five-week series, and the main purpose of this series really is to help us as a new congregation um, begin to, to understand and get more motivated to, as agents of the kingdom of God, as members and citizens of the kingdom of God, to, to act as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world, 
particularly to act toward, to, to work for mercy and for justice and to love the needy and the poor and the outcast whenever we are able to, together as a congregation. And so tonight we're going to ask the question, a broad question, what is the kingdom of God? What exactly does that mean? And then in the coming four weeks, we're going to look at four particular issues that are related to the kingdom of God that are, that are very important both to God's kingdom and to our world today and think about how we as Christians individually and also as a church together are called to work and minister in these areas in particular. But tonight, the question is, what is the kingdom of God? And really... This sermon and really the whole series has kind of two broad purposes, although I just sort of talked about that a little bit. Let me just say this. The first purpose is to teach us, okay? That's in some ways always the purpose of a sermon. But the purpose tonight and in this series is to teach us that if you are a follower of Jesus, a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, then you are right now a part of a new era, a new way, a new community, a new kingdom. And because you are a part of a new kingdom, everything about your life and the way you view this world is different. The kingdom of God will one day, as the prophets say, cover this entire earth as the waters cover the sea. It's going to change everything about our universe. And so because that's true, those who are a part of God's kingdom should be concerned. Not just with their individual spiritual lives, although they should certainly be concerned with that, but with what's going on in the world, with the kingdom coming throughout throughout this entire planet and overwhelming all of the evil and brokenness and wickedness of this world. So the first purpose is to teach you about that idea. And the second purpose of the series, frankly, is to motivate us. Notice I didn't just say motivate you, motivate us, motivate me to be stewards, to be good citizens in God's kingdom as we believe and proclaim the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and as we work as agents of the kingdom for mercy, for loving others, for justice in whatever ways God would call us to do so. So I want to teach us, and also I want to inspire us. I want to motivate us. I want to to move the ball down the field, so to speak, as we think together, particularly about issues of mercy and justice. So that concern will will orient this entire series. But before we get into the, the specifics, we've got to understand the broader picture. What is the kingdom of God? When Jesus speaks about it, When the New Testament authors wrote about it, what exactly did they mean? So that's where we are headed tonight. And so what I want to do is ask three questions as we think about that broad question. Okay, the first one, what is the kingdom of God? Second one, when did the kingdom of God come? Or when will the kingdom of God come? We'll find out in a minute. And thirdly, what does it matter? Who cares? How does that make any difference in my life? So what is the kingdom When will the kingdom come or did it come and what does it matter? The first two points are going to be relatively quick and we're going to spend the majority of our time on point three. Okay, ready? I see some nods, so I'll assume that that means yes. Other people just standing there or sitting there, I'll assume that means yes too. Um, So first, what is the kingdom of God? That's the first question I want us to think about. And uh, if we're going to understand the teaching of Jesus, especially in a passage here like Luke 4, and really the pattern of the scripture as a whole, and if we're going to answer that question rightly, what is the kingdom of God, then we've got to understand a little bit about the Older Testament, the Old Testament, which is the first two-thirds, three-fourths of the Bible. 
Uh, you know, in some sense, obviously, if you've read much of the Bible, you know that God has always been the king. You know, Psalms say he is the king on his throne, everlasting to everlasting. He is God. God has always been and always will be the the king of his universe. Psalm 145, for example, says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. So we see that God is the king over all the universe, right? And yet in some sense, in the Old Testament, there is there's a desire, There's a longing. There's an expectation for God as king, for the kingdom of God to express itself, to manifest itself more and more fully in the world that we live in. Um, There's a hope in the Old Testament for a day when God would not only be the the sovereign king in heaven, controlling all of the affairs of humanity, but but he would stand forth. And shine out, so to speak, in glory and save his people and defeat their enemies and establish peace. Um, so to speak, there, there's, there's been a longing in the Old Testament for, for God to show himself more fully. To be the king that he is. So you read things like the prophet Zechariah, who says something like this. The Lord will become king. You see that? future tense. He will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Or Isaiah 24, where he says, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders, he will manifest his glory. So in other words, in the Old Testament, as you read through the narrative of scripture, there's this increasing expectation and longing For what becomes known as the day, the day of the Lord, the day when he will establish himself, when he will, so to speak, prove to the world, prove to the stars in the sky that he is the only sovereign king. And then you see Jesus coming on the scene. And in a passage like this, Luke 4, beginning his earthly ministry, And I love, this is just an incredible passage. Imagine that you're there, you know, in the synagogue, just another day in the synagogue. And this strange new rabbi gets up to speak, unrolls the scroll. And uh, this is his drop the mic moment, so to speak. You know, he, he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61, which is another one of those expectation passages that I was just talking about. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to help those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. In a sense, the people would have thought the kingdom is going to come. We wait for God to come and save us from oppression, to help us in our poverty, to to meet our needs, to prove that he is the ruler. And Jesus says, boom, closes the scroll today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drops the mic, right? It's it's as if Jesus is saying, I am the king you've been waiting for. The kingdom has come in me. I am the expected one, the Messiah. And so you you can think about the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God is the glorious reign of God. Over this entire universe. It's, it's the extension of the sovereign rule of God. By the power of his spirit. The coming of the kingdom is the coming of God. To make all things new. To fix everything that is broken. To perfect again his world. 
that has been tarnished by human sin. The coming of the kingdom, as one theologian says, is the reassertion and maintenance of God's rights over the earth in their full sense. And Jesus here is saying, my ministry is the arrival of this long-awaited kingdom, a kingdom of healing. A kingdom of release from captivity. A kingdom of freedom for those who are enslaved. A kingdom of proclamation of the good news. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's gracious and blessed rule. His reign of healing. His reign of power, which is ever-expanding and ever-increasing. That's what it is. Secondly, when will the kingdom of God come or when did it come? Well, Jesus makes that pretty clear here, doesn't he? We already saw it in Luke 4. He closes the scroll. I guess he would have rolled it up nicely and gently so that it didn't break. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. Everyone's staring at him. And he says, what? Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom comes when the king comes. The kingdom arrives when Jesus, born of the virgin, arrives in the fullness of deity veiled in human flesh on this planet. The kingdom came when Jesus came. And yet it's a little bit more complex than that. Because we've just said that the kingdom is the reign of God where he will... Well, what does it say here? Proclaim liberty to captives. The blind will receive their sight. Those who are oppressed will experience liberty. The poor will have good news preached to them. There's going to be both a proclamation and an actual healing of material issues, of real physical brokenness. And we don't really see that in fullness in our day and age. In fact, our world is still in desperate need of the sort of things that Jesus reads about here. It's in desperate need of healing. It's in desperate need of release from oppression and poverty. It's in desperate need of hearing and receiving the proclamation that the king has arrived. And so when we ask the question, when did the kingdom come? We say it came with Jesus, but it came with Jesus provisionally. Or you can say Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. It's not yet here in its fullness It's slightly more intricate than just to say it came when Jesus came. That's why you see Jesus in many places in the Gospels saying things like the kingdom will come when X, Y, and Z happens. Especially in the parables you see that. So when Jesus came the first time, the kingdom is inaugurated. And when Jesus returns a second time, he will bring the kingdom in its fullness, in its utter and absolute blessedness. He teaches us about this in his parables, especially in a parable like the parable of the mustard seed or the parable of the leaven in Matthew chapter 13. He talks about the mustard seed, right, which is the smallest of all seeds. And over time, it slowly and silently grows so that eventually it's a great tree that birds make their nests in. He says the kingdom of heaven is like that. It begins in an obscure remote location somewhere in the ancient Middle East. When an obscure rabbi from Nazareth died on a cross and then had thousands of people proclaim him to be raised from the dead. But over time, it's expanded and grown and developed so that today there are over a billion followers of this king, this Messiah Jesus in the world. And one day when he returns, he will usher in his kingdom in fullness. You know, when you think about it... um, 
the kingdom of God is going to be so it's going to be so vast and so great and so lengthy in its scope that the greatest eons and ages and kings and rulers and kingdoms of this world will be like a gnat comparatively. You know, C.S. Lewis said something about this in The Weight of Glory. He wrote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Their life is to ours in the kingdom as the life of a gnat. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. If you're a part of the kingdom, you're a part of of the greatest, most expansive movement in the history of humanity. And it's still moving forward right now. It's come already in Jesus. It's been inaugurated. He right now rules over his church by his spirit. And we await his return when the kingdom will come in its fullness. So that's an answer to our first two questions. What is the kingdom and when did or will it come? So let's thirdly ask this. Who cares? (laughs) Why does it matter for you and for me? I know this is sort of a, some sermons are a little more teaching heavy than others. And this is a teaching heavy sermon thus far. But but let me just try and put it to you this way. When we think about the question, why does it matter? Um, It's very important to understand these things if we're to understand your own purpose. And your own mission in the world. And here's why it matters. The community of Jesus in this age between his first and second coming. The church is it's the pilot plant of the kingdom of God. It's, it's the outpost of God's kingdom. Right now I'm reading this book um, called In the Kingdom of Ice. And it's a, a historical book about a 19th century exploratory expedition. Uh, a group of 33 American sailors want to discover or get by ship to the North Pole. At that point, no one had been by boat to the North Pole. And there was this legend that had a lot of sort of uh, weird scientific data behind it. That in the North Pole, it's actually this very warm sea that will take you from one end of the globe to the other if you can get there. And so it was just this deep desire of people in that day to go up there. And this story is about this man who takes this ship up through the Bering Strait and tries to go through the Arctic, through the ice-strewn waters of the Arctic Ocean and get to the North Pole. And he gets up into the Arctic very, very high up on sort of the circle of the globe, and his ship gets encrusted in ice. And they're encrusted in ice, get this, for three years. And each year they spend 92 days with no sunlight. It's an insane book. They only survived because they would go out on the ice flows and the icebergs and hunt polar bear and seal, etc., skin them and eat them. So eventually they make it through the ice and they reach this island, which is basically a small rock in the middle of the Arctic Ocean that no human to that point had ever been on. And a thousand miles to the west and a thousand miles to the east, there's nothing but water. And they land on this rock. And one of the guys gets a littler boat and goes to the island and gets out. And you know what he does, right? He takes an American flag and boom, plants it in the ice and proclaims, this is now the territory of the United States of America. It's an It's an outpost of the United States. When Jesus came the first time and established his church, he intended his church to be be an outpost. 
to be a place where the future kingdom is present. And so it matters for you to understand this because understanding your role as a citizen in the kingdom of God helps you understand the purpose for which you exist. You exist to display, to manifest, to show others what life in the kingdom is like. What life all over this universe will one day be like. Now, what might that mean? What might that look like? Well, I think Jesus is getting at it here in Luke chapter 4. He says first that those who are in the kingdom are to do what he did. He came, he says here three times, to proclaim proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those who are a part of the kingdom of Jesus live as citizens in the kingdom. They bring the future world into the present world when they believe and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That you enter it not through any other way, but by pledging allegiance to King Jesus through repentance and faith in the gospel. Those who are in the kingdom, live in the kingdom by proclaiming, proclaiming the good news. But notice, we also show the future reality of this world in the present, not just by proclaiming good news, but proclaiming good news to the poor. Not just by proclaiming the gospel of liberty, but by by proclaiming liberty to the captives. Not just by talking about how the gospel frees us, but talking about how the gospel brings liberty to those who are oppressed. Now, yes, there's a spiritual dimension to that, undoubtedly. All of us in sin and under the dominion of the evil one are spiritually oppressed and captive, but there's more to it than that, I'm convinced. There's a spiritual social dimension to the coming of the kingdom, and to the way we are to relate as citizens of the kingdom with this world. You see, Jesus came, the Gospels tell us, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom while acting and demonstrating the good works of the kingdom of well, the kingdom as well. Matthew tells us that he came proclaiming and healing. Jesus proclaimed good news to those who are physically strained, to those who are materially poor, to those who experience in reality what we all experience spiritually, to those who are living under oppression, to those who are living under poverty. Jesus came to bring the kingdom and primarily to bring it to those who are spiritually needy and their spiritually need is demonstrated and manifested in a deep, deep, deep physical material need as well. What does that mean? I think it means that we live as citizens in the kingdom when we value both proclamation of the good news and service to the poor and the marginalized and the needy because we believe the good news. You see, oftentimes the church goes to one extreme or the other and will say our role is just to preach the gospel and save souls because this whole ship's sinking anyway. Who cares? And other times, people will abandon the proclamation entirely and just focus on the needs, the physical needs of the poor and the oppressed and the impoverished. What Jesus did is he cared about people in their whole persons. He proclaimed good news and he acted out and demonstrated good news through acts of mercy and justice. And he calls his church to do the same. Part of what it means to live in the kingdom, part of what it means to live in the kingdom is to tell people about life in the kingdom 
And then to help people understand that life in the kingdom does really mean you're not going to be poor anymore. No longer will you undergo oppression. There will be real physical liberty. The church does that first and foremost by treating one another as as members of what in many ways is a counterculture in the midst of our culture. We treat one another with respect and love and honor. And we seek to meet one another's physical needs. Paul, uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 6 that we are to care for the needs of one another, especially for those in the household of God, especially for those in the church. The Old Testament tells us that there shall be no poor among you. The church exists to show people what life is like in the kingdom. What life is like in the kingdom is that we believe the gospel and then we live out the gospel together by caring for one another's actual real needs. And then as we're doing that together, we move forward in mission, holding firmly to the gospel that has been proclaimed to us, proclaiming it to the others, and while doing that, loving and meeting the real felt needs of those in our city. You know that San Antonio is the poorest city in America with over one million residents. Just this week, um, Marianne and I went to uh, <clears throat> Shara and Dave Pierce's um, ministry's annual banquet. Uh, her ministry is called Resources for Women, and they care for pregnant women um, who have unwanted pregnancies, and they uh, hope to save those children. So it's a pro-life ministry, and they also care for the women as well. And, and she said to me, uh, she didn't say to me, the, the speaker mentioned that every month uh, in Bear County, there are 464 abortions. Um, 75% of the city of San Antonio is Hispanic, as I'm sure many of you know. And in any city in the United States with our history where there's that sort of racial disparity, there's going to undoubtedly be a certain level of racial tension. It's not like the Deep South in many ways, but there is that underneath the surface of our city. The church of Jesus Christ is called, because we believe the gospel, to care about the real needs of the place where God has embedded us. We are to care for the poor in our city. We are to care for the oppressed and the marginalized and the weakest in our society. We are to care for the social and racial and economic tension in our city. And to understand that it will never be fully eliminated until Jesus comes back. But because Jesus is the king and the kingdom has come, we have a responsibility to work, to bring healing in these areas. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But I want to just close with this reminder to us. The real reason, the real reason that we are to care about poor people the real reason that we are to seek the, to meet the needs and stand up for the rights of those who are weakest among us, the real reason that we long to see things like racial reconciliation in our city is because the gospel is true. You are to care for the poor because there was no one who was poorer than you when God came and cared for you. You are to care for the oppressed and the marginalized, because the scriptures tell us that you were oppressed, you were marginalized, you were an outcast, without hope in this world, save in God's sovereign mercy, when he found you and made you a part of his family. You are to care for racial reconciliation in a city like San Antonio because the gospel breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that formerly existed among us. 
to the degree that you care for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized is the degree to which you are really being transformed by the gospel. Because that is exactly what God has done for us. You were poor, and he made us rich. You were outcast, and he brought you in. You had enemies, and he's wiped the enemies out and made you a friend again with him and with brothers and sisters who aren't like you at all. God has proclaimed liberty to us in the gospel. God has set us free. It's the gospel that motivates us. It's the gospel that provides the incentive for us to go out and, yes, proclaim that news, but also live that news by working for justice and mercy wherever God would allow us to in our city. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but I want to close with this story. Miroslav Volf, that's a fun name. He's a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale Divinity School, and he's been there for a number of years, and he writes in one of his books about a visit that he had with a man named Mark Gornick. And Mark Gornick is a pastor who planted a church about 25 years ago in the Sandytown area of Baltimore, Maryland, which is one of the worst parts of the United States. Um, horrible crime, horrible drug problems, just all the things you can imagine in a place where there's urban blight, right? That's what happened there. He planted this church there, and that church has done amazing things. God has built that church up, and they've literally changed the culture of that place. And Wolf, who comes from Yale, is going to meet with Gornick just to learn a little bit about that ministry. And as they're walking through the streets of Sandtown, um, Gornick told Wolf, you know, the main reason that we've worked so hard to do all this is because we believe in justification by faith. And, and Wolf sort of stopped. Because in the circles that he ran in, you have to understand, that was seen as just a completely irrelevant and outdated doctrine among sort of the ivory tower Yale theologians. And he thought, that is completely weird to me. That makes no sense. And he left that meeting, remembering that above all else, and reflected upon that conversation. And as he came to an understanding, he wrote an entire book about this and writes this as he reflected more upon his conversation with Mark Gornick after seeing what had happened in that community. I want you to listen. Here's what he says. Let me find the quote. Sorry. Imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color, and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens, and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered, and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count. Even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now, he writes, this gospel not simply proclaimed but embodied in a community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine furthermore this community determined to infuse the culture it lives in with the message that it seeks to proclaim. This is justification by grace 
proclaimed and practiced. A dead doctrine, hardly. That is what the gospel calls us to as well. To be a people that both proclaim the gospel and embody the gospel by caring for those who spiritually and physically need its reconciling power the most. May Christ Church more and more become such a place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus came, as he tells us here, to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, and to proclaim that to those who indeed had deep spiritual need, but in particular, he loved those who were on the outskirts of society, those who were weak, those who were marginalized. In that day, he cared for women and young children and, quote, sinners. He spent time with those that the religious community had marked completely, marked as being completely off the radar. And indeed, he calls his church, his people, his body in this world to do the same. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as a new beginning church to infuse in ourselves a culture by your grace where we don't just proclaim the gospel, but where we believe the gospel we proclaim so much that we are willing to give of ourselves to meet the needs of the poor, of the oppressed, of the needy, of the outcast in our society. Grant to us by your Holy Spirit wisdom to know who these people are, to see them when we pass by, and to have compassion on them as Christ did. Father, only your grace will do this among us, so we pray for you to come. We pray for you to help us. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth here in San Antonio as it is in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.